You're listening to the Bellevue Baptist Gadsden Podcast. Today's message from Pastor Colt Hudson is part of our current sermon series through the Gospel of John. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you. Thanks for listening. Well, amen. Go ahead and be turning in your copy of God's Word to John chapter 12, verses 36 through 43 this morning. Again, that is John chapter 12, verses 36 through 43. And we'll be looking at the causes of unbelief this morning. The Puritan colonists who settled in New England in the 1630s had this deep concern about the churches that they were building. You see, there was a, a, a very serious issue in those days. They wanted to make sure that the clergymen who they had in their churches, the pastors, the elders, these were people who would be able to read and be people of deep knowledge. You see, in those days, uh, contrary to much of the way that the world perceives the, the role of a pastor these days, in those days, it was very much uh, someone who was well-trained. They were people who uh, were intelligent. They worked deeply in the Word, and they studied. And there was this desire that their pastors be as educated as possible. And so their answer was to start a university. That university became what is arguably the most famous university in the United States, known as Harvard University. A school that was established to educate the ministry, and they adopted the motto, Truth for Christ and the Church. Harvard University, Truth for Christ and the Church. It was even named after a pastor, John Harvard, and it would be more than 70 years before the school had a president who wasn't a pastor. But now, nearly four centuries later, we see that this is not the institution it once was. In today's world, this institution is very much liberal theologically. Their organization of chaplains has even gone so far as to elect the president of the Harvard chaplaincy an atheist, a man named Greg Epstein, who wrote a book, Good Without God. How did an institution such strong Puritan theology devolved to the point of atheism and even the point where they would be antagonistic toward God and the gospel. The answer is the very same elements that we will see in today's text. A hardness of heart, fear of man rather than God, and the love of earthly praise rather than God's happiness with our life. And it's the same way that churches fall from being these bastions of faith. Uh, We see it all the time. There's a a church who is theologically strong or has a very rich heritage of, of being a church that is passionate about the gospel and sharing the gospel. And yet all of a sudden, we notice that something has changed. So that people... They begin to want the praise of men and they get afraid of what people will say about them and they they make a series of small compromises until they wind up totally hardened to the gospel and dead. And we'll see in the Bible today that John witnessed this in Jesus' ministry. Jesus himself, he taught and he performed miracles and, and again, very son of God, and yet the people still didn't believe. They still had these same issues, hardness of heart, fear of man rather than God, and a love of earthly praise. And it kept them from believing in Christ. 
And you know what? There are some of you here this morning who have sat under the gospel for years. You sat under the teaching of the word for years and you have never been truly converted. And sometimes we wonder, what happened? Why isn't there fruit? You see, if we are truly believers, we, we want to see people come to know Christ, to worship him truly and fully. And, and, and we look around and we say, well, what's going on? We have to trust the Lord for fruit. We need to realize that God works in ways that we sometimes never see or hear about until much later. But in this passage today, the reasons for unbelief are laid out clearly. The reasons that people have for not following Christ, they're laid out. And I guarantee you that to some degree, if you are here and you haven't truly believed in Christ, if you're not truly saved, then one of these is nagging your heart. Because it is a characteristic of unbelief. So let's look at John chapter 12. Second half of verse 36 through verse 43. It says, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we come before you this morning, Lord, thankful for your grace and your mercy. Lord, we come praising you for your goodness to us. Father, we, we want to be people who follow your word, who, who make you happy. And so, Lord, we pray that today in this place your will would be done, Lord, your word would be preached, and that you would have your way with us. Lord, you would equip us, you'd challenge us, you'd encourage us, you'd convict us. You would mold us ever more into the people who you want us to be. And so, Father, today we just ask that your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen. At this point in the text, in the story of the Gospel of John, as we've been working through it, We've come to the point now where, again, Jesus is in this, this kind of final week of his ministry here on earth. We are, are at the point where he has entered triumphantly into Jerusalem. He's been teaching. And the, these Greeks wanted to see him. These people came up to the feast who were Greeks. They couldn't worship in the temple because they weren't Jews. And so they were restricted to the court of the Gentiles. And, and they would stand out there and watch the worship, but they couldn't participate. And so they wanted to see Jesus. They wanted a better way. And last week we saw that he taught on his purpose and the power of the cross in judging the world, casting out the devil, and saving people from every tribe and tongue. We remember Jesus taught clearly that his purpose was to come and die on the cross to pay the punishment for the sins of his people. And when we believe in him, when we trust him, when we put all of our hope, faith, and trust in Christ, we're saved by his grace. 
And he concluded this teaching, uh, again, back in the first half of 36, by calling them, teaching them. They need to walk in the light while they have the light. He just told them, believe in the light while it's still light. Believe while you can. And yet many, we see here, they, they, they wind up walking away unbelieving. He, he had done many signs, the Bible tells us. But yet, they would not believe. When we look at the context of this and, and who these people are, it would have naturally been a mixture of Jews and Greeks. We see that because uh, the Bible tells us here that some of the authorities, this is again, Jewish leaders, they, they, they would believe what he's saying is true, but they wouldn't go so far as to put their hope and faith and trust in him. But we see that this would have been a mixed crowd. This would have been the Greeks who wanted to see him, who came explicitly to him, and then also these Jews. And yet, again, many go away unbelieving. We ask this question, how can this happen? Why does this happen? And I believe we see three reasons here in the text. I I buried the lead. I told you from the beginning, it's hardness of heart, fear of man, and a love of the glory of man that leads to this point. And so we jump immediately into this. First of all, why didn't they believe? Well, hardened hearts. Verse 38 says they didn't believe so that the word spoken spoken by Isaiah would be fulfilled. We remember that every word of the Bible is true and perfect and correct. But what is the word from Isaiah? Well, we see here, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is a statement that they haven't believed, right? And then the second part about blinding their eyes, hardening their heart, we see that they cannot believe because their eyes have been blinded and their hearts hardened. Now, as we we look at this, we recognize this is a, a tough passage for us to think through here because God is explicitly referenced as the one doing the hardening. It says, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Now that he there is is clearly God from the context. Hardened here is a word that means petrified, right? Uh, The best example uh, that I can tell you is like a fossil, right? It's hardened. It's dried out. It's dead. Hard as a stone is another way that this word has been described over the years. And this quotation here that comes from Isaiah, it comes from Isaiah 6. Now we need to remember, in Isaiah 6, this is the section where Isaiah sees the Lord and the angels are crying out, just as we sang a moment ago, holy, holy, holy. And as Isaiah is standing in this midst, he says, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. The moment that Isaiah was confronted with the presence of God, he has this deep understanding of his sin. And he says, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. The angel takes a flaming coal and purifies his mouth. And the Lord asks this question, Who will go for me? Whom shall I send? And Isaiah says what? That favorite verse that we love to to say, this promise that we love to claim, Here am I, Lord. Send me. And many of us over the years, we have again made this claim, Here am I, Lord. Send me. And this is what the Lord says to Isaiah when he says, Send me. Isaiah 6, 9 through 10, it says, And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. 
Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their hearts and understand with their hearts. So I hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. This is a quotation. See, the unbelief of these people is a fulfillment of Scripture. And the Scripture says that these people have been hardened by God. Now, we know that God is not the author of sin, nor is he unjust. And so we need to be sure of what we're saying here, and I want you to to make sure that you know what is happening. God is not taking people who want to believe and hardening them here. Okay, that's not what's happening. There's not a person out there who's begging God to save them and loves the Lord and, and following him, and God's like, boom, you're hardened. No, I don't want you. That's not what's happening. God is not hardening someone who otherwise would believe. Rather, what's happening here is that he is further hardening those who are already hardened, who are already dead in their sins and who have hearts of stone. He's simply giving sinners over to the fullness of their desire. They are hardened by their sin and their sinful will, and he hardens them. There's some examples of this in Scripture that help us understand this. Uh, Perhaps the best example is that of Pharaoh in Exodus. Right? We remember that Moses appears before Pharaoh many times. We remember the plagues. This was a very dramatic and and amazing scene that we see in Scripture. And and Moses continually is appearing before Pharaoh and he's he's appealing to him, Lord, let, let my people go. And so he appeals to Pharaoh and the Bible tells us that Pharaoh, it tells us ten times that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then ten more times it tells us that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. You see the correlation there? Pharaoh is hardening himself. The Lord is giving him over to this. See, Pharaoh was not a follower of the God of the Bible. He was not wanting uh, to, to follow the Lord. But because of his sin and his idolatry and his pride, his heart was hard and God further hardened it. So that's one example. Another example is the sinners of Romans 1. We look at Romans 1, 24 through 28, we see this example as well. They have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And we see here in verse 24, it says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, For the women exchanged natural relations for those who are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another, committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. Three times we see God gives them over to this. It's a reprobate state, right? This debased mind. God didn't give them those desires. He gave them over to it. There's a difference. He gave them over to sin, and we need to recognize that this is a judgment. So God is not hardening otherwise wonderful believers. He's hardening these sinners who have hardened hearts already. We remember that unless we are saved by God's grace, we are all dead in sin and have hearts of stone, and we do not love God. 
So God's hardening here is not unjust. He's simply allowing them to continue in their sin. Some people, though, still want to accuse God of injustice. And to those people, I send you to Romans 9, where here Paul answers this very question. In Romans 9, verses 13 through 23. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Now Paul's answer here is clear. Who are we as creation to speak back to the creator? He has the full authority to do whatever he desires. Right? The psalm says, our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. But God will be glorified in all of us, either through our believing in him and glorifying him in our life, or through showing his justice as we are justly punished for sin. So we see that hardness of heart is a cause of unbelief. We need a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone. And only God can change our hearts by his grace and mercy. In Zechariah, there's almost this exact same quotation, right? I know many of us uh, maybe aren't super familiar with Zechariah, as we might be with other passages. But in, in Zechariah chapter 7, verse 12, we see this statement. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts has sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. Some of you here, again, as I shared this morning, have heard the gospel many times. Some of you have heard about the things that you need to, know, need to do, and you know you need to do it, but you won't. Just like in Zechariah and Romans and here in our text today, you have hardened your heart and it is diamond hard. You don't want to hear the word of the Lord. You don't want to hear the law. And some of you right now are mad and frustrated at the word as it is being preached. You don't want to hear it because of a hardened heart. If that's you, you've hardened your heart. You refuse to see, and just as we see here in this text, you can't see the forest for the trees. So many of us, you know what you're supposed to do, right? We know it's not biblical to gossip. We know it's not biblical to hold grudges. We know it's not biblical to keep living in this sin or that sin, but we do it anyway. And over the years of ministry that I've been involved in, the easiest way to see this hardness of heart is when people say they don't care what the Word says. It shows up all the time. I've seen it. Right? In, in, in business meetings, we say, well, we can't do this because, say, we can't do this because this is what the Bible says. And people say, well, we don't care. We're going to do it anyway. 
In biblical teaching, you sit down with someone and you walk them through the, the word with them to help them understand the doctrine. And, and I've had people say this, that's what the Bible says, but I don't care, I don't believe it. And, and we sit here incredulous today and we say, well, that's awful. And, and again, we may say with our lips that we care what the Bible says, but our actions betray us. Because, again, a hardened heart, it, it, most often, again, it shows up, it manifests itself through saying, again, I don't care what the Bible says. And when we hear that, we think, well, I would never say that. But yet so often in our actions, we do it. Because we do exactly opposite of what we should do. And we persist in sin that we should not persist in. Listen, God, God will not abide a hardened church. Neither will I. We cannot settle for that. There is great danger to churches in unregenerate and unsaved people in the midst making unbiblical decisions and living unbiblical lives. It impacts us. So if that is you, wake up and smell the grace. Romans 2.5 says, Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Guys, don't store up more wrath by hardening yourself. God will not abide it forever, and you don't want God to turn you over to a debased mind. Today is the day of salvation. But don't say, oh, that, you know, I'm not. A lot of times, hardened people live in this, this denial. Well, I'm not hardened. I'm just waiting for the right time. And to those people, I, the, the question that I would pose is, have you ever sinned and at first it felt awful to you? Right? You were sick to your stomach. And now it just doesn't even bother you. See, for so many of us, that's the way that this shows up as well. Maybe in the things that people never see. You, you might have this favorite little sin that you hold on to. And, uh, you know, we'll just use lying as an example. You tell a lie one time, and you're like, man, that was awful. I feel terrible. I'm sweating all the time. It just, ugh. But the more you do it, after a while, your conscience goes numb. You don't feel anything anymore. That is hardness of heart. If we persist in sin, we will harden to it. So wake up. We are not to be a hardened people. Hardened people are judged, right? We saw that. Uh, those who turn and repent and follow Christ by his grace, those are the ones who are healed and restored. And if that's what we want for our church, then we cannot be hardened. That's why we have church discipline, ultimately. Right? If people refuse to repent of sin and are hardened, we are to put them out of the membership because this is serious stuff. It's not a game. It's serious. And some of us have been sitting here playing what I call biblical chicken for too long. Y'all know what the game of chicken is, don't you? You know, you have two people going at each other and you see who's going to be the last one. Whoever veers off first loses, right? And some of you are in a game of chicken with God. You're staring him down and you're thinking, oh, I'm going I'm to wait until just at that last moment I'll veer off and, and I'll live a biblical life and I'll be saved and that's it. Right? Like at that last minute, I'll trust God then and I'll ask him to forgive me and everything will be fine. You think you can get a little closer and go a little longer in sin and before you know it, you have run out of time and you are over the edge. Don't harden your heart. Turn today. 
This is the warning that Jesus had just given them. And, and then we see this explanation flow through it. So this first reason that the people didn't believe is because, again, verse 39 says they could not believe. They've been hardened. The second major cause is fear of man. Fear of man. They were afraid of what the Pharisees would do to them if they believed and confessed. They knew, right? They believed mentally in what Jesus was saying. But they wouldn't confess it because they were afraid of people. See, belief without confession means nothing. We remember even the demons believe. And Jesus made it clear, if you deny me before men, I will deny you. Right? We are to believe and confess that Christ is Lord. But the fear of man, it prevented that. And again, some of you here likewise have a fear of men and a fear of what it will cost you on earth that prevents you from living for the Lord. And the Bible is replete with warnings to not fear man, but rather to fear God. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. In Luke chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, Jesus is teaching And he says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And Isaiah 51, 12 says, I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like grass? The Bible's clear. We don't need to fear men or what they can do to us. We, we recognize man's power is limited. The pain that man can inflict is limited. And everything about them is limited. Whereas with God, the opposite is true. We fear God, not man. God's power is unlimited. His punishment for sin is eternal, never-ending unlimited. So... On the other hand here, we need to realize that if we trust in God, we know that we are safe because his power is unlimited to keep us exactly where he wants us. Proverbs 14, 27 says, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. It's a fountain of life. How many of you lately have have said, Hey, I, I feel dried up, dried out. And just down, right? Many of us talk about that all the time. That's how we feel. We need something to to refresh us, to renew us, to revitalize us. And, And Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. And yet so many people fear people instead of God. People who can generally offer us nothing. One of the most gifted speakers in church history was a man by the name of John Chrysostom. Now, the name Chrysostom comes from a Greek word that means golden-tongued. John Chrysostom was sent from Antioch to what was then Constantinople, and he, he preached fearlessly in this capital, the Eastern Roman Empire. And his preaching was pretty much centered on denouncing their lavish extravagance and, and the way that the ruling classes worked. And, and basically he was condemning them for this excess of life they lived. This materialism. This just over the top. 
And it infuriated people to the point that the empress arranged for him to be exiled. When he was told of his fate, John Chrysostom responded, What can I fear? Will it be death? But you know that Christ is my life and that I shall gain by death. Will it be exile? But the earth in all its fullness is the Lord's. Will it be loss of wealth? But we brought nothing into the world and can carry nothing out. Thus all the terrors of the world are contemptible in my eyes and I smile at all its good things. Poverty I do not fear, riches I do not sigh for, death I do not shrink from. You see, Chrysostom understood that there is a very serious impact when we fear the Lord rather than man. It equips us again to be able to face all of these things. Far too many people today are more worried about what people think than about what God thinks. And we have this desire not to offend people. It's often elevated to be the most important thing. And as a result, many shrink from speaking the truth. Oswald Chambers said, The remarkable thing about God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. Because we constantly have to be afraid of what others think and feel and say. And it changes from person to person. You see, as a pastor, I can never cater to people because where there are two Baptists, there are three opinions. Even if we wanted to cater to people, and we do not, we cater to God alone. But even if we wanted to, it wouldn't work. Because it's constantly changing. And here's another reason for this. One writer wrote this. He said, all experiences of the fear of man share at least one common feature. People are big in their mind. They have grown to idolatrous proportions in our lives. They control us. And since there is no room in our hearts to worship both God and people, whenever people are big, God is not. Therefore, the first task in escaping the snare of the fear of man is to know that God is awesome and glorious, not other people. And you see, that's the problem. The problem with fear is that fear is ultimately worship. Fear is an Old Testament word for worship. If we're afraid of people and we allow their opinions to shape how we act, and especially if their opinion is contrary to the Bible, then they have taken the place of God. The moment when other people's opinions trump God's word, then they are now, in your mind, God. We we see examples of this all the time. If you speak again against the LGBTQ movement, then they will hate you. God tells us we must. If you speak against abortion, they will hate you, but God says we must. If we allow man's opinion to win out over what God has said, then man's opinion, again, is God. And let me tell you, friends, here's the thing. There is no God more fickle than man. Because every day, it changes. And you can do the best you can in this life to to never offend someone. You can do the best you can to appease the world, to tickle its fancy. And you will never be able to keep up, and you will never be good enough. We see it all the time. But if we fear the Lord, his word is eternal and unchanging, and he gives us grace to save us and sustain us. So I read in another article, this is, Woe to us if we tremble before criticism and yawn before the cross. Fear is about worship. And the only place that worship should be going is to the Lord, not to other people. And it happens even in churches. Don't let fear of man drive your decisions and your actions and your words. Speak the truth of God's word and walk in it or don't speak at all. 
Whenever we get afraid of offending people, it almost always leads to error. Always. Just be faithful to the Bible and let the Lord work as he will and the Lord will bless. That is our job. Fear the Lord, not man. Because whenever we fear man, we are worshiping him instead of God. Our last cause, our last reason for unbelief here is the love of the glory of man. The glory of man. We see here in verse 43, it says, For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. The Greek word there for glory is the word doxa. Doxa, again, is, carries this connotation of worship. It's where we get the, the word doxology. Ultimately, again, it's, it's loving the worship of other people. 1 Peter 1.24 says, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls. You see, some people do what they do to earn the glory of people and power and control. It happens in the world, it happens in the church. Here's the thing. Just like before, the glory of man fades faster than it takes to give it. It fades. First Peter says, the grass withers, the flower falls off. The praise of man is nothing more than a few seconds of hot, bad smell and breath. And we would do well to remember that. You know, the world's longest standing ovation was 22 minutes. It's the record. 22 minutes. All the praise that the world has is done in moments. So why live like that? Well, it strokes the ego, and ultimately, as I said, it's about worship. You see, fear of other people, just as we talked about a minute ago, it makes other people God. But when we live for other people's glory, that makes you God. Because everything you're doing is to receive praise, right? To receive doxa, which is reserved for God, and yet we want it for ourselves. When we feel that we are the right object of other people's praise, other people's worship, other people's glory, then we're saying we are God. And there's no more arrogant claim than that. Ultimately, if you think you're God, that leads to a very bad worldview. And it generally makes you an awful person. And I just say that as honestly as I can be. If you go look at anybody who's involved in a religion where they think that they are God, the way that they treat people is garbage. The way that they function is garbage because they believe, again, as God, they're entitled to everything. Now, we might not come out and say that, but we see it. Galatians 1.10, though, warns us on this. It says, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. We cannot have both, right? We can... We can live for God's glory or we can live for man's glory, but we cannot do both. So if you do what you do so people will praise you and talk about how good you are or even how good our church is, then we are not servants of Christ and we cannot be. Because servants of Christ are not about themselves, they are about God getting the glory. 
And again, we can say all day long that it's for God's glory, but if it's ultimately about ourselves and how we feel and what makes us look good, then it's not. And so there's a, there's a few questions we can ask ourselves, right? Are you happier when people tell you good job than when God gets the glory? It's an important question for us to ask because some of us are walk around living for attaboys and backslaps. Are we more excited about people knowing what you did this weekend than what God did? See, we need to answer these questions honestly and accurately. Because if so, then we are living for ourselves. This is not Christ-like. See, Christ humbled himself to death. He came to serve so that God's name would be glorified. We saw that last week. That was his whole purpose. He says, for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. He came so that God's name would be glorified. So you can't have both. You can't. So we have a decision. As individuals, as a church, are we about ourselves or are we about God's glory? Are we afraid of what the world thinks and is that going to drive our decisions or will it be his word? Because if we're about ourselves or we're afraid of other people, we might as well just go home. But if we are about God's glory, then we better walk out of here today and we live for him alone. Not others' opinions, not others' glory. That is the mark of a hardened heart. We live for him because this is the mark of belief. And he deserves nothing less than everything we have because he went to the cross to die for our sins. And we forget that. What have we done that can even come close to comparing to him going and paying the punishment for our sins, taking the wrath of God for us? That if we believe in him, we are saved. Nothing can compare to that glory. He endured the the derision of people. They made fun of him. They mocked him. They shot dice for his clothes. Again, the example of Christ is not one of worrying about other people. It was again one of saying, Father, not my will, but yours. And I know we talk about this a lot, but it's because it's important and the text dictates it. Don't harden yourself to this correction. Listen to the Lord's word and turn to his will for your life today. Don't harden yourself. Don't live for other people. Don't live for you. Live for the Lord. Let's go in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. Because, Lord, we recognize that were it not for your grace and mercy, were it not for Christ going to the cross, were it not for your spirit moving in us, that, Lord, we would still be hardened. And so, Father, for every believer here today, Lord, I call out a a prayer of thankfulness, a prayer of praise, Lord, thanking you for calling us from that hardness of heart, giving us a heart of flesh and saving us. But, Lord, for those people who are here today and they are living with hardened hearts, they're living for their own praise and they're living for the fear of man, Lord, I pray that you would call them. 
to life. Lord, that they would not remain hardened, but Lord, that they would turn from their sins and trust in you. Father, move in our midst now. Show us how we can best give you the glory. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Bellevue Baptist Gadsden Podcast. We would love for you to join us on campus for worship Sunday mornings at 1045. We look forward to seeing you. Have a great week.